Now, let's look at some of the implications. Now we come to all these questions you keep asking me. Look at this. You, you got to watch those little kids with the rabbi. They hang on every single word. Now you can say, okay, that's abusive. That Listen, maybe it is in there. That's what Jesus did. And those guys that followed him around, they weren't always very much like him. But in church tradition, which isn't inspired, almost all of them died as martyrs. Tell me, were they like the rabbi or not? You bet they were. Almost all of them. Now, How old were Jesus' disciples? Well, at what age did you join a rabbi with Smicha? 15. And what if people like Peter and Andrew and Matthew were already learning life's occupation? They could have been under 15. Maybe they didn't get into Beth Midrash. People, the disciples are far more likely high school sophomores or younger than they are people my age. The only guy that the Bible moves in the direction of suggesting is older is Peter in two ways. One, he's married. That suggests 20 to 25. Two, there was a, there's a commandment in Leviticus. Every Jewish male, 20 and older, has to pay one shekel temple tax every year. Peter came, disciples are there, Peter came to Jesus and said, um, Rabbi, how will we pay our temple tax? Now, he doesn't mean, I'm out of money, where are we going to get it from? He means, I want to be like you. Show me how we will pay our tax this year. And Jesus says, oh, that's a good question. Go fishing. And he catches a fish, and in his mouth is a, I made a mistake, Every Jewish male 20 and above has to pay a half shekel temple tax every year. Catches a fish. What's in the fish's mouth? A coin. One shekel. And Jesus says, Peter, that's for your temple tax and mine. Where's the tax for the other guys? Probably not 20. The word for John, a young man, if John is referring to himself, means a pre-adolescent. He could be as young as eight. I understand why he was Jesus' favorite. He's just a kid. A little kid. What made those people so special? You know why? In my opinion? Because a kid of 12 or 14 is far more likely to become like his or her teacher than a kid of your age, and certainly than a person of mine. They were respected when they traveled around, even though they were so young, they were so respected by the culture there. I always, I always heard that um, the argument that Jesus, he waited long to be exerted, though, because at the best time, he was most respected as um, a rabbi. 
Okay. That gets me to the next point. So I'm going to go to that next point, but I don't want to step on the question here. So ask me a question. I'll see where it fits. Okay. People come up with right away, well, Peter and Andrew were fishing. But remember, you start learning a trade at age 12. Okay, you didn't take notes, I'm sure. But at age 12, you start learning a trade. What was the tax collector's trade? Well, we see a tax collector is in the IRS office filling out W-2 forms. No, a tax collector sits next to you while you're fishing. Nice thing. Sits next to you while you're fishing and says, one, two, three, four, 28, 42, 51. You owe me nine. Nine! That's the tax. So I take nine. Now what do I do with the nine? I go to town. What am I going to do with those fish? Send them to Rome? No. I take the fish and I go to the market and I sell them for 50 cents less a pound than he's selling. So I undercut him. I get the money and I send them. How old do you have to be to count fish? Understand that to be a tax collector, you could have been 60 or you could have been 10. It's not a CPA. And that's, you can say, well, but you can't prove. No, I can't prove it. I'm saying put it in its culture. How old are the disciples? Why do they always live to be so old? Why only Peter with a wife? What about letting the See? Who's he, who do you think the disciples thought he was talking about? Unless you become like little children. I think they talk, okay, that's us. Now, let, let me continue. How did you become a Talmud? In every case but two. There are two rabbis who are different. It went like this. We've got Rabbi Matthew. Let's imagine I'm 15, and I know almost the whole Tanakh. I mean, I was good. Let's imagine that. Big imagination, but imagine. So I'm looking around. Rabbi, I like this guy, but eh, he's doing good. That rabbi probably going to die in a while and uh, I'd have to, okay I'm young I love this guy brilliant may I ask you a question your reputation has preceded you yes my son thank you very much may I follow you now what did I just ask him pardon yeah that's western can I be a tell me what am I really asking him can I be like you? Do you think I could be like you, Rabbi? Well, I'm honored you would ask. Um, recite Leviticus. That's easy. That was second grade. Very good, my son. Didn't miss a word. Recite Deuteronomy. Okay. Great. You're very good. My son, the book of Amos, 17 times, takes a phrase from Deuteronomy and then explains it in prophecy. Give me the 17 phrases and the explanation. Boy, I should have taken notes. I can remember 15. He says, my son, you're a wise and godly man. You know Tanakh. Live for the Lord. Become a potter like your father. Be the best potter you can be. I'm sorry. God has not given you the gift be like me. Now, I suppose, I suppose people were crushed, but only one out of a thousand got in anyway. So maybe I tried Rabbi Luke. Maybe I just thought, well, that's God's answer. This is a man with smicha. Listen to me. 
I want you to think about Jesus. He walked along and saw two guys fishing. Tell me what that tells you about those two guys. Regardless of what age, they didn't get into anybody else's school. You need to understand, these aren't the valedictorians. These aren't the merit scholars. These aren't the kids with the IQs of 160. These are people who didn't cut it. And Jesus walked up to them. Only Hillel does this. And Jesus said, come, follow me. What did he just say? I think you can be like me. Tell me what that says to a C student who's been turned down and rejected. I heard a sermon not so long ago where the pastor was so amazed that those guys dropped their fishing nets and followed Jesus. Are you kidding me? This rabbi had already raised the dead, cast out demons, fed 5,000 people, if Luke's chronology is correct. And he shows up and says, you can be like me. Those kids broke the Olympic record in the quarter mile, getting home, saying, Abba, Ima, guess what? Rabbi Yeshua thinks I can be like him. Do you understand what it does to a person to tell them that he believes in you? There's a great verse in John chapter 15, which unfortunately we Calvinists have used entirely wrong. I didn't question my Calvinist background. I questioned the use of this passage. Jesus says to the disciples, you guys go change the world. And remember, you did not choose me. I chose you. I believe in you. Are you listening to me? If you are a Talmud of Jesus, he really believes you could be like him. He picked you knowing you. He believed the worst sin, said Akiba, is to teach a student to believe in God and not to teach the student that God believes in you. He believes in you. He really believes that if you will passionately become like him, you could be what those 11 were. I carry in, the wall, in my wallet a whole lot of things other than money. Got my pride and joy. Got the latest picture of my kids. And I have my student. Jonathan Vindabschutz. John is now 20. He sat in my first hour Bible class for three years consecutively in the front seat. Always the first one in, always the first one out. I don't think he ever got a single answer on a test right. I don't think he ever handed in a single assignment. You see, John has Down syndrome. And John has a learning ability of a first grader. I remember the first time he walked into class, we have inclusive ed, and he sat in the front, and I always have prayer at the beginning of class, and I said, I need somebody to write down these requests so that if God answers them, we can give him, we can bless God. And Jonathan raised his hand. I thought, oh my God, what's he gonna do? He can't even write. Fortunately, somebody was sitting next to him. I said, would you help work with John? She said, sure. You know what, that kid never wrote anything down. He never forgot a single prayer request. Months and months later, Jonathan would find somebody and he would say, how's your cousin? My cousin was, we prayed for your cousin like a long time ago. How do you remember that? Can I tell you something? 
this kid was more like Jesus than any kid in the class, starting with a teacher. He loved us. He cared about us. It was always being Jesus-like. He has the IQ of a first grader. It doesn't take IQ to be a Talmud. It takes the passion to want to be like him. And if you have the IQ, it's the same. Look, they're in the lake. These guys think the sea is hell. They're scared to death because the storm came up, just exactly what they think the devil is about. Funny story. Jesus is sitting up in the hills. It says they rode all night in the, in, the, in the storm, and he watched them. For six hours, he watched them. Next time you think you're rowing against the wind, remember, Jesus is watching. Then it says the third watch of the night, 3 a.m., he came walking out to them on the water. And the funny part is, it says, and he was going to walk on by. Hey, guys. <laughs> really, it's like, and they go, a ghost, ah, why a ghost, it's the abyss. And then Peter says to him, Rabbi, if it's you, let me walk to you. Now, listen to me. We all turn Peter into this superhero, super Christian. Listen, this guy is a fisherman. He probably can't swim. He thinks it's hell. You think Peter for one second thought he could walk on water? Of course not. Why would he try? Get mocked by all his buddies? Maybe drown? Why would Peter try? He wanted more than anything else in the world to be just like his rabbi. If you're going to be like the rabbi, you're going to have to get out of the boat. I don't care how scared you are. I don't, think how, I don't care how stupid you think people will think you are. If you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to have to get out of the boat and be like him. So Peter gets out. Now, I see this kid. I imagine Peter is 20, and all the other sophomores are sitting there, and they're like, holy cow, look at this. And Peter gets out, and he goes. And I see him. I know high school kids. It's like. <laughs> He's doing it. And then it says, the text says, and when Peter heard the wind and saw the waves, he became afraid. And he started to sink. And Jesus reached his hand and pulled him up and said, Oh, you of little chutzpah, why give up so easy? Why did you, you of little faith, why did you doubt what? Doubt me. See, that's what we Christians want to say. Why did you doubt me? People, he didn't doubt Jesus. Jesus is still standing there. Who did Peter doubt? Why, why don't you believe you could be like Jesus? Why don't you believe you could be like Jesus? Why don't you honestly believe that if you would live out your faith with the passion they did, that the world would change? Why don't you really believe this? He believes it. We have turned discipleship into classroom. I want to tell you something. I'm no hero. 
and I'm not your rabbi. I want more than anything else in the whole world to be like Jesus. I eat and sleep and breathe that thought. And the way you start is the text. To know Jesus, I would recommend you read each gospel once a week. I mean, each gospel a week so that every month you read the four gospels once a month. And that's in addition to other Bible reading. Get to the point where you find yourself saying, I know what Jesus would say. There's one other passage that fits this, too, because I know what's going to happen. There'd be some in here, and I don't mean to point the finger. It's just I understand, and I've been in each of these roles, so I can relate to each of them, who will say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to heaven, so what difference does it make? Okay, I, I, I don't know how to even deal with that. I've been called to be a Talmud. He's picked me because he believes in me, and he really thinks I could be like him. I don't know why, but he does. I'm going to do everything I can to be like him. There will be some in here who are going to say, you bet, I want that fire in my chest. I'm going to go out there and be like him. And you'll get about as far as the end of the hall, like I do, and you will say something or think something that you'll think that was about as un-Jesus-like as it gets. And you will say, he was God, I'm human. He's being interrogated for his life. His oldest, I believe, Talmud, Peter. You know, everybody thinks Peter is so impetuous because he always talks first. Maybe. I won't argue that. You know why I think he always talks first? Because he's 20 and everybody else is 15. If you see a group of Talmudim and there's one older, the oldest one always does all the talking. Because it's wisdom. And Peter's got the guts to come back. His rabbi's over there with his back to him. I know he can see him because the text says so. And Peter's standing around the fire. And a woman says, hey, you, you were with that rabbi. Hey, Peter said, I never saw him. Never saw him? You're a Talmud who wants to be just like the rabbi, and you never saw him before in your life? Another person. Ah, you were with him. I know you were with him. I swear to God, I never saw this man before. You're a Talmud who wants more than anything else in the world to be just like the rabbi, and you swear to God that you never saw him before? And then the woman again. Your accent, you speak with the brogue. May God damn me if I ever saw him. And the text says, and Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Four years, I walked with you everywhere. You had the passion to be like me. My son, you take an oath that you never knew me. And Peter knew from a Jewish context that it was all over. There is not a rabbi in the world, not even a Kiva, who would keep a disciple who swore in public that he never met the rabbi. 
And what does Peter do? Hangs around for the death and the resurrection. And then where is he? He's fishing. He's all done and he knows it. He screwed up big time. He threw it all away in an instant. Just like you will right down the hall. But this isn't an ordinary rabbi. Because this rabbi looked him up and said, my son, do you love me? Don't ask me. Of course. Then feed my sheep. My son, do you really love me? Jesus. Then feed my sheep. My son, do you really, really love? Jesus, don't do this. Yes. Then feed my lambs. Now put that into the picture of the culture. Who is the shepherd? Jesus. Who feeds sheep? Jesus. Who feeds lambs? Jesus. And when Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, what did Jesus say? Be like me. Be like me. Be like me. This is an amazing rabbi. And when you deny him, outwardly and actively, like I do, or inwardly and silently, if you go to him and say, Rabbi, I still want to be like you, he'll take you back. People make a big thing about the word love in the Greek. And uh, the question is, what does the word love there in the Greek mean? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He uses one word twice, one word once. Maybe. In the first place, I think you have to be careful with that because Jesus was certainly not speaking Greek. So the Greek writer is trying to capture something from either Aramaic or Hebrew into the Greek language. And I know the Bible is inspired. Those are exactly the words God wanted. But what Hebrew words lie behind them? And can we make the case that the Greek words are to be literally taken as the words that Jesus said? Well, it's not that simple. So I don't want to get into the textual debate here, except to say this. What the Greek captures, I think, is that each word increases the intensity. So that's why I say, do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you really, really love me? Because that, I think, you can say for sure. Whether the word, the use of the agape in there means do you love me this way and do you love me this way and do you love me this way I don't have an answer that's a good question who would his rabbi have been most likely John the Baptist he's in the desert and he shows up and John gives him smicha I think from age 15 on age 12 to 15 listen he was in Jerusalem at age 12 he then goes home and learns the trade then he disappears, shows up at what age? 30. 30. I think he's studying with John. That I can't prove, but I think that's logical. Isn't that odd? That's what the Jewish scholars talk about, too. Not only that, but the youngest rabbi with smicha we know of, that I know of at least, got his smicha at age 60 in that time. 
Jesus would have had Smicha at age 30. That's probably why they were so blown away. Where in the world did you get Smicha? You 30-year-old, that's like, you're way too young. Well, then you make his teacher, John, only six months older. But did John have Smicha? The answer is, when Jesus said to the Sadducees, where did John get his Smicha? What is Jesus implying? That John had Smicha. So John got it from somewhere, too, before age 30. I love that. There are some distinct differences between Jesus and the Essenes, and I don't know that now we have the time to go into it. I think at the very least, the way it plays out, it suggests that John was. Good question. Okay, I'm going to take a seven minute, then I've got one piece I want to do, and I'm going to leave out a big chunk in the middle. And what I may do at the end is after you've had a chance to graciously leave, because many of you have important stuff to do, and I would be the last one to want to come here and drag you out of all the great stuff you're doing. I'll probably hang around for a little while and maybe do another piece or just answer questions. Take a seven minute, and then I've got one more. I want to show you something. Uh, I'm going to drop a big section in the middle, and then we'll pick that up. So seven minutes, please. How are you? Okay, good. How are you? Good. They are taping this. I don't want to get your okay to give it to like students and staff. We, yeah, I'm sure there's no problem. The director of the ministry is the guy sitting back there. Did you talk to them? I didn't. I just know that we okay. need your... See, he's looking at you right now. Okay. Great. So he needs to sign this with yeah. you? Well, he would, he, he's the, okay. all that kind of stuff I just pass on. So. Okay. The whole love thing, but didn't Jesus say, agapao, agapao, then leo? Yes. But why does, why, why, why does John, no, 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 I don't, I don't agree with that. Agapao is a love unconditional. that's unconditional. And phileo is a love that is permanent. So you move from the idea of unconditional love to love that will never change. So do you love me unconditionally? Okay. Do you love I me unconditionally? Describe that way, okay. okay, well, that's the way I understand it. But see, that's not my question. I agree we have to go with the words in the text because they're the words that God wanted there. But why did John choose those three words if Jesus didn't say those three words? That's my question. Well, see, and that, that's, that's, my, that's my question. Jesus obvious, or John obviously chose, inspired by the Spirit, those Greek words because something about them fit the Hebrew or Aramaic words Jesus said. But is it the meaning of the word or the increase of degree? And in Hebrew, when you get a sequence of similar words, you go from lesser to greater almost always. And I'm thinking, I'm not arguing because I said I don't know the answer because I don't know why John chose those words. What would be interesting to me is to look at how the Septuagint used those words in the Old Testament. But I think for sure in it, there is an increase in degree in terms of the unconditional is okay, that's the way it is now. And the phileo is the brotherly love. But brotherly love is an idea of I'm going to love a brother forever because he's my brother. See, I can marry a woman and I wouldn't do this, but marry a woman, stop loving her. But my brother is always my brother. So brotherly love, though it is translated like, Phileo is brotherly, sisterly love. That is an eternal love. It, 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 it has a degree, a sense of extending forever, because it's a blood relationship, not a marriage relationship. Okay. So that, again, all I'm saying is let me add that little piece without knowing exactly why those Greek words are, are there. We'll have to ask John someday. Always ask, why did the writer choose those Greek words? 
because they're inspired words, but they were words that were picked by God's grace because they had a certain meaning in that generation. Another question. Um, is the whole idea of it being canonical that it does, it's not limited to a generation? Being what? But how do you even know when you go to the Bible and you come across a word what that is in English? How do you know that if you don't know what it meant? It's like chutzpah. Chutzpah in Hebrew today has taken on a different... Oh, let me take an even more obvious one. Merkava. Merkava in Hebrew today means an army tank. So when I come across the word Merkava in the Bible, it's there over and over again. And I, okay, I know what that is. Merkava is an army tank. I've got to know what Merkava meant to the people of the Bible. Otherwise, I'll have no idea what English word to put it. Well, in the Bible, Merkava was a chariot. So, yeah, the words are eternal, but their meaning is fixed in time. And that's what translators do. They take a word and say, okay, that's the Hebrew. We know what modern Hebrew means. What did that word mean? 1500 B.C. Well, it meant such and such. Okay, now I can begin to ask what English, what Spanish, what French word translates that. But without knowing the meaning in the time and place, it doesn't help to know what the Hebrew word meant today. Does that, that make sense? So the, the words are eternal, but their meaning was fixed in time. When John chose the word phileo, he did because of what phileo meant then. Sure. And phileo may mean the same thing today, but it may not, too. What, was the, what do you think about the documentary in the box? Well, I, I think I think there's probably it, it's one of those typical things that I, I find when I, when I am exposed a little bit to liberal scholarship, um, and I'm very anti-liberal, not because I don't respect their right to think or they're wise. And I've learned a lot from liberals. Their problem is they have a low view of the text. Right. And if this isn't the very word of God, then I haven't got anything to stand on anymore. So I have a real problem with that. But I think what the documentary hypothesis helps me to see is that when the books of the of the Torah were assembled by whomever, and I happen to think it was Moses, but that's not a provable hypothesis. But when they were assembled, they brought in sources from many places. So there are a variety of sources in the Torah. Where I run into problem with the documentary hypothesis is when you start saying, well, the prophetic elements, for example, weren't put there until 500 years after the events happened. That's a bigger problem for me. That I won't I, I won't, I don't believe myself. But I think the documentary hypothesis helps me to realize that the writers of the Bible were using sources just like any student would on a good research paper. And the Holy Spirit's inspiration governed what they looked for, what they found, and what parts of it they trusted and didn't trust. I mean, those things were all in God's plan. So you really like a scribe wrote those down? No. Well, maybe. I, that I don't know. But certainly the person who has the, the, priest, the priestly source is the one that is most like the account of Moses' death. P, P is the... And even in there, it says uh, the, the genealogies are recorded in the books of Yashar. Right. Well, what in the world is Yashar? Well, it's something that somebody got out of a library somewhere and they're copying out of it. Yeah. I have a question. This is more of a general question. This is pretty big. This kind of helped me um, sort everything out. Um, why is, um, I mean, if, if things are translated, what you say it translated, why haven't 
Okay, I'll start with that. I'll start this session with that. How's that? That's a great question. I like it. Can you go over really quick with the women being Well, I'm I'm taking what we what we know about the culture in the Middle East from ancient time to today, and it's just culturally clear that almost all shepherds, if not all shepherds, you can authentic authenticate authenticate are little boys or girls and there's nothing in the bible with the exception of moses and, and and even joseph's brothers people say yeah but they were all men okay maybe they were but did they have their families along doesn't say they didn't we make it sound like it was only the 12 brothers of joseph 11 brothers of joseph and that their families weren't there i don't think so i think shepherds always go with their families so his brothers are there but i'll bet you anything that it was his kids that are herding the sheep you know what i'm saying so even with Moses, somebody asked me for about Moses, and he's out by Mount Sinai. Well, there's two possibilities. One is he's an outcast. He's murdered somebody, and, and so he's alone, and now he's, I mean, he's countercultural. Or he's married, has kids already. This we know from the Bible. Maybe Zipporah is there, and Zipporah is herding the sheep, and David, uh, Moses is sitting under a rock. It just the only culture where you find male shepherds is the Arab culture that's been influenced by the British. Who did John the Baptist say under that? I don't know. There's absolutely no way to answer that because there's Josephus has a lengthy account of John's life. Josephus claims to have studied with a rabbi who was in the desert baptizing named Bonus. And it sure sounds a lot like John the Baptist. So there have been those that have proposed that John the Baptist studied with the same teacher that Josephus did. But that's a pure speculation. I mean, it's possible, but great questions. Ooh, I shouldn't have said that. Well, the word is feminine in Hebrew. Ruach. Ruach in Hebrew. Ruach is feminine. It's a feminine word. So technically you say she. I always get a kick out of that when people get all caught up in this thing about the gender in the Bible because people, they want all male, which is correct. Jesus was he, God was he. But then they don't want to take the female. It's funny because it's obviously selective, but anyway. Bless you. Okay. Um, again, I apologize for keeping on apologizing. Um, left all my stuff lay here. There, there's so much that I really wanted to tell you, but at this point, I want to address a question that came up this morning and has come up three or four times, either on the floor here or up front. If all of this Jewish stuff is so powerful, if David Flusser thinks Jesus really claimed to be the Messiah, why don't they believe in Jesus? Well, I think at this point, you could see that there's more than one answer, but there's one answer that you will understand better at this point than you did before. One answer might be, God hasn't opened their eyes. When you get home tonight, you ought to get on your knees and bless God that he gave you the insights he did, because if he didn't, you wouldn't be a believer either. If you didn't have the parents you had, the teachers you had, something in your life he put there that brought you to Jesus. Maybe he hasn't done that for them yet. Okay, I understand that. Listen. A Jew would view Jesus as a rabbi, especially a religious Jew. Now, the rabbi is gone. So if you heard about a great rabbi 
that I was following. And you wanted to know what my rabbi was like. How would you figure it out? You would look at me. People, do you know what the disciples of Jesus have done? In the Byzantine period, we killed a million and a half to three million Jews because they were Jewish. In the late Byzantine period, any person who became a member of a church in North Africa, the great Augustine's church, had to take an oath you would never read Hebrew, you would never eat Jewish foods, you would never have any Jewish friends, you would never go to Jewish festivals, you would never read a Jewish Bible. In the Middle Ages, more than three to six million Jews were slaughtered by our brothers and sisters, the Crusaders, not only by Christians, there are brutal Jews too, but in the name of Jesus, so that they were given permission to plant a cross and to rape women as long as it was in front of the cross, and to cut babies in half as long as they were cut in half in front of a cross because you sent them in heaven, sent them to heaven. Girls would crowd into the synagogues when the soldiers rode into town in Europe with a razor blade at each other's throat so that they would kill each other as the crusaders rode in because they knew what would happen to them if they got caught. Three to six million. And then the Inquisition. 700,000 Jews killed by Christians because they refused to convert. And then the Holocaust. Martin Luther wrote a treatise called On the Jews and Their Lies, in which he says every Jew ought to be made to eat feces and drink urine and be locked into a synagogue and burnt alive. Martin Luther. And the Holocaust happened in a Christian, at least to the Jew, context. Now tell me if all of those people are Talmudim, that that rabbi is the Messiah. We have spent 2,000 years proving to Jews that Jesus is a fraud. Honestly. And the biggest stumbling block of any religious Jew to believing in Jesus is not the Trinity. It's not the idea of Jesus dying for the sins of people. Those are stumbling blocks because of modern rabbinic theology, but not big ones compared to what his disciples have been like. And you know what? We have Billy Graham Crusades. And we have Campus Crusade. And we call our Christian sports teams Crusaders. And we wear Crusader crosses. What do you think we say to the Jewish world, let alone the Arab world? Honestly, and I get real passionate about this because I have so many soulmates who are Jewish who do not believe Jesus is Messiah. And I understand that though they'll have to answer to God, part of it is my fault. And if you want to reach a Jew, you act like Jesus. Because now they have a dilemma. Your rabbi must be genuine. Maybe. There's a book called Through Arab Eyes. It's a PhD scholar, I believe he was at Oxford at the time, who wrote a book about the Crusades, only using Arab sources. You shouldn't read it at night. And I went to a Christian school where we were taught, we were taught that the Crusades were a good thing. No, I would, I would say, good question, you'd have to separate secular, most secular Jews are not that familiar with history. They have some sense of the Crusades, don't kid yourself. 
but most of them are not into the rabbinic model. And I think there it has a lot more to do with culture. Although I can tell you, even from secular Jews, when they meet people who are really like Jesus, it creates a dilemma for them because they understand a disciple is like his teacher. These are the words of Jesus. A student, Talmud, is not above his teacher. It is enough for a Talmud to be like his teacher. That's Jesus. Be like me. Be like me. Be like me. That's why I put this eraser up there. Because if you find that every single thing Jesus ever did that was cool, he did because he was God, then you can't be like him. And if there are things he did as a human, now it becomes possible, pray you, filled by the Holy Spirit, with your heart changed, directed by the... I understand all those things. It's all God. Be like him. Was there another question I was going to address before I... <laughs> Okay. Her question tags onto that, or maybe is prior to that. Her question is, why is so much of this stuff new? You find some new stuff today? How about the manger without straw? That one usually hits people kind of it's like, what? Everybody knows. You, you, I can teach all kinds of heresy in the school where I am, but don't insult Santa Claus. Because, oh, seriously, there's certain things that are just part and parcel. You know, there's another one that Christians just love, and that's Mary and Joseph on their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And Mary's on a donkey. Now, how many of your families drive a Mercedes or a Lexus? Don't be embarrassed. God bless you. Anybody? One, two, three, okay. You guys would have donkeys in Bible times. The rest of us would walk. And Mary makes an offering for the birth of a son of two pigeons. That says, I'm the poorest of the poor. Now, either Mary is lying to God, which seems totally out of character for what the Bible describes, or this woman is way too, she walked. That drives Christians crazy. You can't see Mary walking nine months pregnant on that road I showed you before. It, it's just, it doesn't fit Christmas. So we put her on a donkey, and we feel really good about that. Okay, it doesn't change the gospel, but it's just, well, when we cut our Jewish ties by doing things like Augustine did and the Byzantines did to say, because the Jews rejected Jesus, God rejected them, and we replaced them as the church, now, all ties with studying Jewish roots were cut. I went through a great Protestant seminary. I won't tell you the name of it. I think an outstanding seminary and got a great religious education in a Christian college as well as in a seminary. I never read one single Jewish source. No Mishnah, no Talmud, no Josephus, nothing. It, didn't, it was a black hole. Those are Jews. They rejected Jesus. What could they know? Well... I don't want to debate the theology of that, but it turns out they know a whole lot that can help me. I learned, I'll be honest, and this is blunt and, and maybe overly critical, I learned far more about Jesus from Jews who didn't believe he was Messiah than from all the Christian teachers I've ever had. Replacement a little bit? You mean replacement theology, sort of? Well, um, wow. There are seven feasts. Yes? What's the first one? Passover. Very good. What happens 
five days before Passover. Test your knowledge of the Old Testament. Five days before Passover. Pardon? Nope. You pick the lamb. Five days later, the lamb is killed. What happened to Jesus five days before Passover? Triumphal entry. Why did he come on that day? He was the lamb. What happened to him on Passover? He died. He was the lamb. What's the next feast? Unleavened bread. It's the feast where you put grain in the ground and then pray to God to bring the harvest for the coming year. Um, give us life out of the earth. What was happening to Jesus on that feast? As every Jew who was religious was praying, God, give us life out of the earth, what were they doing to Jesus? Burying him. Think about it. What's the next feast? First fruits. You bring the beginning of your harvest to Jerusalem, and you bless God because the first part of the harvest is coming. That means the rest will follow what happened to Jesus as, as first fruits began. He rose as the first fruits of those who rise from the dead, Paul says. Then what's the fourth feast? Weeks, Shavuot, Pentecost, the feast that celebrates the Ten Commandments coming down on Mount Sinai, as well as the beginning of the, the late harvest. What happened on Shavuot? Holy Spirit came down. When the Ten Commandments came down, what did Moses find? Golden calf. How many people died because of it? 3,000. Same day, 1,200 years later, the Holy Spirit came down. How many people believed? 3,000. Tell me that God is playing a joke here. Understand this. Every single piece of the Christian Bible falls right into the framework of the Hebrew world. Now, did Jesus ask us to continue the feasts? Not in the same sense, because he is the completion of all of them. He is the first fruits. He sent the Holy Spirit. He is the Lamb. But in a sense, we continue to perpetuate the memory of Jesus. And I think it would be very appropriate for Christians to celebrate those feasts in light of their fulfillment. What's the fifth one? Trumpets. Announcing. <laughs> judgment. The judgment day is coming. And it's announced with the shofar. What's next? Death, burial, resurrection, Holy Spirit. What's next? Second coming. Rosh Hashanah. We'll discover someday. I don't make predictions. I think he's going to come on Rosh Hashanah. Hasn't missed a feast yet. <laughs> then comes the judgment day. Yom Kippur. Then comes Sukkot. The promised land feast. Heaven. The whole Christian message is in the feast. And I think... For sure, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. If we don't celebrate a feast every year to look forward to the Judgment Day, I think we miss the whole point. 